Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Philip, Philip Gorski to talk about his book, the, the Flag and the Cross, and discuss Christian nationalism and the events of January 6th. Please don't forget there's a donate button because we can't do this without your support. If you're on YouTube, subscribe. If you're listening to the podcast, come on over to the website, sign up on the email list, and we'll be back in just a few seconds. The House Select Committee into January 6th has been investigating for months, and two words that are missing, maybe three words that seem to be missing from their investigation are white Christian nationalism. Uh, is th the real story of January 6th is certainly one of the more important pieces of the story. On January 4th, 10 former secretaries of defense issued a letter in the Washington Post essentially warning the American armed forces to stay out of the results of the presidential election. January 6th was two days away where Pence was to confirm uh, Biden's presidency. On the same day, January 4th, the former Supreme Commander of NATO, Admiral Stevardis, issued a letter or a column in Time magazine which said more or less the same thing and supported the letter of the 10 former secretaries. So this had to be coordinated. And we found out later this whole thing actually was coordinated by Dick and Liz Cheney. And in that article, Stavridos says, when Trump called the governor of Georgia, uh, something must have gone down a chill must have gone down the spines of the 10 former secretaries because they realized Trump was attempting a coup. On the same day, January 4th, the Financial Times, in an editorial, ends it by saying, as bizarre as it seems, a coup is in progress in the United States. Well, what were these people all so afraid of? We've yet to hear, as far as I can tell, anything from the House committee about the threat from the U.S. military, or I should say sections of the U.S. military, because the very senior commanders also warned the sections of the military not, and get, not to get involved. There was uh, some kind of statement that came from the chair of the Joint Chiefs Milley. There are also statements from at least the head of the Army and I believe the head of the Navy also saying stay out. Uh, you don't issue all these statements unless you're actually concerned that some sections of the military might intervene. And it seemed the plan was that on January 6th, uh, all hell would break loose on Capitol Hill and the military would intervene. And together with these uh, forces that had uh, breached the building, stop Pence, or perhaps they expected Pence to uh, agree and cooperate, not to confirm Biden. I've, I've made this point, which I'm about to say over and over again, and nobody else seems to be paying much attention to it. But one hour after the doors were breached, the American Association of Manufacturers issued a public statement calling on Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump from office. Uh, that doesn't happen in an hour. So all these people knew something was coming. And of course, I keep asking the question, if everybody knew, how come they didn't actually have the National Guard there to prevent uh, such occurrence from taking place? And that goes back to Senator McConnell and the uh, Sergeant of Arms of the Senate who really controlled such things. 
But let's focus on just what was it that the 10 former secretaries of defense were so concerned about what's going on in the military, what's going on in the society that made them actually think a coup was in progress. Now, that coup failed, but there's lots of talk that all this can happen again, all this meaning uh, a support for Trump or a Trump-like figure uh, and the uh, discrediting of elections if whoever this figure is doesn't win. So the issue is, where in the population is there really such support for this kind of politics? And certainly the most important answer, I think, is white Christian nationalism. So now joining us is someone who's been studying the phenomena of white Christian nationalism for quite a long time. His name is Philip Gorski. He's a professor of sociology and religious studies at Yale University. He writes on religion and politics in the U.S. and Western Europe. He lives in New Haven, Connecticut, although today he's joining us from Amsterdam. His latest book, co-authored with Samuel L. Perry, is The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. Thanks very much for joining me, Philip. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. Now, just before we get into this, um, let me say, when I think of American democracy, um, I, and I, 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 you can tell me if you agree with me, we're talking about a process where there are elections, uh, people can vote, uh, there's, in, in the courts, there's presumptions of I innocence and such. There's some basic uh, what I would call, and not unimportant, very important, but formal pieces of democracy. There's certain, certainly no economic democracy, and in practice, for many Americans, not even basic rights, for example, if you live in, amongst the urban poor in most American cities. But that being said, the threat we're talking about is even to that much democracy, where people actually do get to vote and have legitimate elections. Are, are we agreeing on that? Absolutely. We have a, a fairly narrow um, form of democracy that really is just electoral representation. And there certainly have been many places and times where people had a much more expansive understanding of what democracy meant that would have included um, greater economic equality, for example. Uh, why aren't people talking about just what was it these 10 former secretaries of defense were so concerned about? Uh, or, you know, the former Supreme Commander of NATO, uh, Financial Times. Why, what was it they thought could happen? It means they thought a section of the military actually could participate on the 6th and intervene. And they don't want to talk about that now because it makes them look weak. It makes them look, wait a second, are the Americans not in control of their own military? I mean, that's, that letter from the 10 former secretaries is essentially saying, and, and the admiral comes out and actually says it, that Acting Defense Secretary Miller, he, I think Stavridos uses the term, doesn't have the spine to stand up to Trump. They're telling the world that the, that the leadership of the military and the broader political leadership, because yeah, com Trump was still technically commander-in-chief, but he wasn't supposed to be within a few days, that it shows incredible weakness. And, and they don't want to talk about it. 
and, and they don't want to talk about it in terms of geopolitical concerns. What does Russia and China think of, it, of a military that might be essentially in a state of mutiny or sections of it? And it's certainly not good for business to not have a peaceful transition of power. What does that mean to the kind of chaos in the American political system? Yeah, um, I, you know, I we haven't done any don't have any survey data where I can say X percent of the military hold this form of Christian nationalist views, but there's certainly plenty of circumstantial evidence that um, you know there are folks in the military who do. You know, we just need to think about people like. Uh, Michael Flynn and uh, General General Boykin, who've been very outspoken in 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 this regard, and uh, you know, it, even if it hasn't reached the top levels of the command structure, I think we all need to remember that uh, coups are not made by the generals; they're made by the colonels. What is white Christian nationalism? Let's talk about what it is, and it's certainly not something new. This isn't something that arises with Trump. Um, and the sort of unholy alliance, I would call, between Republican politics and white Christian nationalism certainly goes back to Reagan. Sure. So one way of thinking about white Christian nationalism is as a deep story about American history, or to put a finer point on it, a mythological version of American history that goes something like this. America was founded as a Christian nation. The founders were Orthodox Christians. The founding documents are based on biblical principles. America has a special relationship with God and a special role to play in history. Its uh, role is to spread freedom uh, and Christianity around the world. Uh, and in order to carry out this mission, it's been given uh, extraordinary power and prosperity. But that power and that prosperity and the mission itself is endangered by the increasing number of non-whites, non-Christians, non-native-born people in the United States. And this is a way of thinking about American history, which is extremely common in many circles in the United States, even if it's one that might be unfamiliar to some of, of your listeners. We refer to it as a deep story, not only because it goes very far back in, in American history, but also because it's embedded very deeply in American culture, so deeply that it's more like the water that some people swim in, or maybe a better metaphor is the lenses through which they see the world. And is it partly this conception of America that justifies genocide against Native people? and slavery against Africans. Exactly. So what you which which your question raises is what I described earlier is this deep story is Christian nationalism in some sense, but what, what exactly does this have to do with race or with the white part? And what makes it white is that it emerged during the period when uh, the English settlers, in particular in New England, were engaged in a series of brutal wars with the indigenous peoples, and also during a period in which uh, slavery was increasingly becoming racial or racialized, as, as we would say. Um, and the way in which um, this manifested was in um, a kind of a mythological understanding um, of um, racial history in which 
African enslaved Africans brought over to the English colonies were uh, the inheritors of Cain, who had been cursed by uh, by God um, and condemned to eternal servitude. And it was also a, a period in which uh, some of the most radical uh, Puritan theologians were conceiving of the um, Native Americans not just as uh, heathens, um, as they initially thought, but actually as uh, demonic forces or, or, or Satan worshippers. And so in this way, um, Christianity in America uh, in many forms becomes uh, entangled with, with racism very early on. Um, I would add that this is not the case for all forms of, of Christianity. I mean, every generation there were uh, Christians who stood for inclusion, universalism, uh, equality. Uh, the problem is just that they have not been the dominant uh, force within American Christianity during most periods. So if you take this forward into the 20th century, uh, when does it become such an important political phenomenon? Or, or was it previously? Maybe that isn't something new. It, it, well, it is, uh, it is really kind of a perennial phenomenon, and it tends to move to the fore during periods of war, during periods of immigration, uh, during periods of of, of rapid social change. And guess what? We're living in a period where all three of those things um, have been uh, kind of steadily humming away in the background. We lived in a period of, uh, of one war after another. We live in a period of, of, of mass immigration. Um, and we live in a period of economic disruption. And, um, you know, white Christian nationalism is the form in which kind of backlash against those developments has often taken place. And it's been also very entwined with U.S. foreign policy. There always seems to be, uh, and you can even see it now, there's, a, there's a, a level of concern for what's happening in Ukraine far beyond what's happening in Yemen. Uh, there's, a, there's a feeling that these are white Christians that are being killed in Ukraine, of course, also by white Christians, the Russians. But but no near nowhere near the same kind of concern about what happened to people in Iraq or Afghanistan and so on. Yeah, you know, ab absolutely. So uh, it's white Christian nationalism that helped to legitimate the territorial expansion of the United States. And once uh, the United States reached uh, the Pacific, it uh, began to legitimate American imperial adventures overseas and. Uh, initially in South and Central America and the Caribbean and um, since World War II all over the world. The phenomenon of white Christian nationalism and how intertwined it is uh, with U.S. imperial ideology, it's certainly not exclusive to white Christian nationalism. This kind of uh, American exceptionalism and looking at most of the rest of the world, certainly non-European world, uh, as less than, perhaps even less than human uh, in some. That's not just white Christian nationalist. I mean, I, you know, the, the Dick Cheney's of this world, the neocons, uh, even Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War, uh, you know, the elites, uh, this is something that seems imbued in the, in the whole Amer uh, ideology of American exceptionalism. So how do we distinguish that from white Christian nationalism? 
Yeah, I would say that the roots of American exceptionalism are in white Christian nationalism, exactly this idea that somehow the United States is um, destined to expand, to control, to rule. The world is rooted in, in white, white Christian nationalism. And it's true that there are kind of secularized, um, rational forms of it, uh, you know, kind of foreign policy realism of a certain sort. But I do think that's really very much where, where the roots are. And I, I think that um, American exceptionalism of a kind of a popular kind really is uh, just, um, you know, a kind of a politer form of Christian nationalism, if I can, if I can put it that way, you know, a kind that doesn't uh, shout quite as loud about, uh, about blood sacrifice and battles between good and evil, though, Honestly, I think that uh, that era of kinder, gentler American exceptionalism that we saw from uh, perhaps Reagan through uh, the second Bush presidency is, is certainly very much behind us uh, with and since the Trump presidency, uh, where there is quite explicit talk about about blood and race and territory. It's more the overtness of the language. Certainly the invasion of Iraq wasn't kinder or gentler. Uh, and, and Bush immediately framed 9-11 as a, a battle between good and evil. Uh, Reagan did a similar thing uh, during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Uh, so, so as you say, these, these things are not so disconnected. It's just this particular form of it is, is, is more overt, but it, but it does represent a specific political force now. Uh, it used to be that this Christian nationalist uh, right Christianity was very allied with Reagan and the Republican Party. Now the, the, uh, this white Christian nationalist groupings around Trump, which is a, you know, a, a very significant number of people. I mean, I don't know how many of the 75 million people that voted for Trump would identify as white Christian nationalist. I would think a large number did it just because they want lower taxes and don't give a shit about anything else but lower taxes. But it could be 20 or 30% of that vote. I've seen numbers like that represent a, a strong Christian nationalist uh, ideology. Um, on, uh, but the only thing right now that that political force seems to hate more than socialists, which seems to be one of the things that's at the core of the, their ideology is the hatred of socialism. And they love calling the Democrats socialists, even I think it, they, they know they're not, but still. But they hate that Cheney-esque neocons who up until not that long ago, they seemed to be more or less on the same page. Uh, what is the schism between the, the, the uh, you know, Republican establishment as, as represented by Cheney and the neocons? And of course, Liz Cheney sitting on this January the 6th committee and this white Christian nationalists around Trump. Well, let me put it to you in terms of a metaphor. So uh, political scientists and historians often speak of the Reagan coalition as being a little bit like a three-legged stool that consisted of uh, social conservatives, um, <clears throat> uh, defense conservatives, and uh, fiscal conservatives. But, you know, there was really, it was never really a three-legged stool. There was always a kind of a hidden fourth leg, which was uh, racism or, or white supremacism. 
And I think what's happened is as that fourth leg has become visible and indeed, you know, one of the most important legs of the Republican Party, that uh, defense conservative leg has uh, has kind of fallen away. I think there's a there are two other reasons for this schism within the Republican Party. Um, you know, one is simply that the major enemy now for white Christian nationalists is not external, it's internal. It's it's not uh, godless communists. It's not so much radical Islam anymore. It is secular humanists, um, liberal progressives, and uh, you know, and all the various stripes uh, that, uh, that 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 they come in. And I think you know the second thing is that um, you know folks who were part of that neoconservative uh, or you know defense conservative leg were themselves often. Um, relatively liberal on social issues. And so I think, you know, that kind of push and pull has really ripped that leg off. And there, you know, those are those folks, the Bill Crystals of the world and the David Frums of the world, you know, David Frum being the one who wrote that speech about the axis of evil, by the way. Uh, I mean, they're the ones who really kind of uh, are finding themselves homeless now in the Republican Party. Well, they may have a home in the Democratic Party, which which is a which is a, which is a pity. <laughs> as bad as the Democratic <laughs> Party was on foreign policy, these guys are right. making it even worse. Um, the uh, so the the ideology of white Christian nationalism, which has been, as you said, you know, with us since slavery and genocide against the native people, and has has justified this kind of brutality through a religious grammar. It, it seems to have taken on a new life after World War II in the Cold War uh, against godless communism. Uh, and, but this hatred of, of the left and socialism, uh, which is you know, rooted, in, I guess, in the post-Cold War years particularly, um, seems as active as ever. When, when Trump attacks things and, and his cohorts, it's usually the, the left and the socialists. You listen to Tucker Carlson, he's going on and on against the left. Um, what, what's at the roots of, of that hatred? I, I remember there's one line uh, when, when Obama was running against McCain in the last week of the election and McCain was getting really desperate in the polling. He started a new front of attack on Obama, which is uh, calling Obama a socialist, which is kind of a joke because Obama was nowhere was not a socialist, but but the one line Obama had, which is one of the few, actually, I was never a big Obama fan, but he had one line I thought was really good. When McCain accused him of being a socialist, Obama's answer was, well, my Bible teaches me I should be my brother's keeper. So, I mean, what exactly is the Christianity these people believe in when, when they would hate that idea that they should be their brother's keeper? It is a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? I guess the first thing to say is that socialism, when people um, on the right shout about socialism, they don't. Socialism for for many of them is really just a kind of a umbrella category under which they include everything I hate. So, um, you know, it's it's a sort of a, it can be a way of talking about race without talking about race. Uh, it can be a way of talking about immigration without talking about immigration. It can just be a way of voicing voicing hostility, um, you know, um, in in more in more in more ideological terms. But it, you do make a really good point. You know, what sort of Christianity is it that is so avowedly 
anti anti-socialist um, you know, since there certainly are plenty of uh, passages and um, in the Bible that comport perfectly well with, with with socialism as we now think about it. And I think the way that most Christian nationalists and many Christian conservatives think about this is they think in terms of personal accountability. So there's a phrase you probably heard uh, out there somewhere, maybe even from a conservative friend, neighbor, or, or relative. And this is just the idea that um, you know, everything that happens in your life is your responsibility. Are you saved? Are you damned? Are you rich? Are you poor? Are you married? Are you single? This this is all up to you. And that that history and social context matter not a whit. And so part of what this is about, it, it, it's a way of, uh, of, of folks who um, are born into relatively privileged lives to feel like they made it all themselves. Uh, one thinks about a certain former president who was born with a platinum spoon in his mouth, several of them, in fact. Um, but it's, of course, also a way of, of blaming people who are less well off for their for their own misfortunes, as if, uh, you know, the guy who, uh, you know, who uh, was born on third base and made it home is, uh, you know, exactly the same as somebody, uh, you know, who gets one chance, uh, you know, gets one swing uh, at a hard fastball. Now, people that believe uh, in Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, and, and some of whom are extremely rich, uh, as far as I can make out, uh, the uh, still living Koch brother uh, seems to be a Christian nationalist himself. Uh, Robert Mercer and his daughter Rebecca, who really played an instrumental role in Trump becoming president. They used to uh, own Breitbart News where Steve Bannon worked and they brought Bannon and Kellyanne Conway into uh, Trump's campaign. Uh, the Mercers seem to be Christian nationalists themselves. And of course, a lot of ordinary people are, are really true believers and, and, and do believe that their enemies, uh, be it the Democratic Party or the actual left and socialists, uh, are the devil's tool. They, they see it not in an ab it's not an abstract good and evil, almost a literal good and evil in the sense this actually they are in a battle with the devil. And 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 if we bring that into the events of, that led up to January 6 and the concern uh, of, of these people, from a wide range of people, really, that something was going on in the U.S. military. Uh, how threatening is this now? Uh, as we head into 2022, 2024, in terms of the military, in terms of the society, uh, millions and millions of people that think they're at war with the devil. I think it's more dangerous than ever because more organized and more radical even than it was five years ago. And I think there, in particular, there's been one shift that I would really emphasize. I think this is maybe something that uh, sort of secular observers or you know people who don't study this stuff for a living like I do miss. But if you sort of think back to you know who were George W. Bush's spiritual advisors, you know, there were more people in the mold of Billy Graham, right? They were you know kind of you know upstanding, uh, pious uh, evangelicals, you know, sort of who, uh, for whom words like polite and civil and winsome uh, were marks of, of, of good character. Now, if you look at the people whom Donald Trump surrounded himself with, they were not 
evangelicals, they were Pentecostals, which is uh, which is a somewhat different different animal. And let me just uh, delve in very quickly to the theology here and hit on two points that I think are especially important to understand here. So one is uh, the Pentecostal doctrine of the seven mountains. This is taken from a Bible passage, but the basic idea is that there that there are various spheres of power or mountains of power or hierarchies, and that it is the uh, the, the task or vocation of Christians to conquer and control every single one of those peaks, education, business, entertainment, politics, so on and so forth. The, so how are they going to how are they going to conquer those peaks? Well, this is where the second doctrine comes in. This is what they refer to as spiritual warfare, and this is the the idea um, that we are surrounded every day, all the time, um, with an ongoing struggle between visible and in invisible forces of good and evil, and that we are uh, uh, that you are as a as a certain kind of Christian called to be a soldier uh, in this battle. And just to give you a sense of how concrete and real this is, let me just point you to the date between January 4th and January 6th, namely January 5th. Um, on, that, on that day, there was an event referred to as the Jericho March. Now, you know, those of you uh, who, who are familiar with uh, the Jewish scriptures or the Christian Old Testament will know that this refers to the, uh, to the uh, Joshua's march um, around the city of Jericho, and one of the things that they did is they blew out these uh, ceremonial ram's horns known as shofars. Well, this is exactly what the Jericho marchers did, uh, is marched around the capital blowing shofars, the idea being that the capital was being controlled by evil and demonic forces like the Democratic Party. Um, and that what they had to do was sort of expel those forces so they could capture the capital in the same way that uh, the Israelites captured the, the, the city of, of Jericho. And who were some of the folks who were present for the, present for the Jericho March? Well, uh, Michael Flynn, for example, to return to our earlier theme about connections to the military, Flynn being, uh, as many of your listeners will know, um, uh, a longtime defense intelligence analyst, and, and then uh, for time, Donald Trump's national security advisor, well, let me let me just add Flynn's Flynn's brother is a senior commander, I believe, in uh, uh, Pacific Command of the U.S. military. And Doug Mastriano, uh, who is now the official GOP nominee and probable front runner for uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, um, and uh, you know, very devout uh, Pentecostal and preacher of spiritual warfare. So this is just all to say that, that you know, the, the, if, if you thought that the Christian right was radical 10 years ago, they are far more radical today. And, and, why, and, and why do they have so much strength and organization, not just at levels of ordinary people, but it seems even at levels of the elites? They've been at it for a very long time. And, um, you know, I think that the fact that they're sort of brought together by religious faith on a regular basis, uh, you know, just creates a, a kind of a wellspring of organization, solidarity that 
the Republican Party and Christian right leaders have been extremely effective in channeling into politics. And they're just, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is there's nothing remotely equivalent uh, anywhere on the left. Um, you know, there used to be unions uh, 40, 50, 75 years ago, but as we all know, uh, they've been they've been severely weakened, um, even if they may be making a small resurgence today, but just nothing remotely equivalent in organization. And it's, it's not just an ideological phenomena. They seem certainly connected to the fossil fuel industry. Climate science denial seems to be a big piece of this ideology. Um, I, I, I don't know that there, I know there are some sections that didn't like the lying of the of the Iraq war, but uh, they, they also seem to have connections with the military industrial complex. Uh, there is an economic spine to this, certainly at, at, at the more elite levels at any rate. Absolutely. And uh, you know, this again, though, I would just say is nothing particularly new that there has been a close relationship between business elites and uh, conservative Christians for a very, very long time. In fact, you know, there's actually even been a lot of movement across those boundaries, a lot of very prominent religious leaders, um, you know, such as Dwight Moody of the Moody Bible Institute, famous revivalist, um, you know, actually started out their careers in business during the teens and 20s, uh, and particularly after the beginning of the New Deal, there was a very uh, concerted and conscious attempt by groups of conservative businessmen to uh, kind of first nurture preachers um, who would uh, transmit a message that was a version of Christianity that was uh, went well went well together with their with their economic interests and um, even more so uh, since, uh, since since the 1980s and so what did the Koch, what did the Koch brothers believe or what did they believe uh, religiously hard to say but um, what certainly is true is that they've they've found um, you know in, in the Christian right a kind of a useful useful mass ally you know a useful group of voters uh, where they can get to the polls and have therefore been willing out of interest or conviction or both to funnel enormous amounts of money towards them. Uh, it's very possible, some say likely, that in 2022, the Republicans will control perhaps the House, perhaps the Senate, perhaps both. And that could well be white Christian nationalist Republicans controlling the House, perhaps the Senate. Uh, they already seem to more or less seem to control the Supreme Court. Uh, in 2024, they might elect a president. I, I personally don't think it's going to be Trump, but I, it doesn't have to be Trump to represent those same forces. Um, what do they want? And, and if they actually do control all three branches of government within, within you know, a few years, very few years, what, 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 are we, what America are we going to see? I think we're just going to see, you know, more of the same. I don't think there are too many surprises out there. So, um, you know, they're going to want to uh, exert much more control over uh, teaching about history and especially about American history, teaching about race in particular um, in the schools, uh, also in the universities. They are going to want to push through measures um, that will uh, you know, reinforce a, a kind of patriarchal household um, and 
uh, undermine the, the rights of, of women and, and sexual minorities. Um, you know, they're going to want, um, you know, absolute uh, freedom for gun owners. Um, they're going to want to really finish building that wall and to, you know, backpedal as far as possible on, on immigration um, and so on and so forth. I suppose, you know, the only thing that they that they won't want that uh, that sort of the old GOP establishment seem to want is, um, you know, rollbacks and Social Security and, and Medicare, um, at least not for people like themselves. You know, they don't want the government interfering in their Medicare. And might they pass the kind of restrictive voting laws nationally right. that we're seeing in certain right. states? Right, and, and that, that I think is the other thing that we will see is, uh, you know, that we've seen and similar authoritarian regimes that have taken power and, uh, you know, places like Hungary and Poland and uh, the Philippines and Turkey is, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, changes to voting laws and uh, representation and uh, court appointments, which will help them to sort of shore up and perpetuate their power. Now, th this strengthening of these forces didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, to some extent, uh, do you think that it happened because of the Democratic parties uh, ignoring whole sections of rural America, uh, not being all that concerned about what was happening to the public education system and large parts of the country, um, a kind of uh, and the deindustrialization that took place, which a lot happened under Clinton and, and Obama. Uh, I mean, I don't think if any of these particular Democrats are to blame for them. It's, it's part of the development of modern global capitalism. Uh, it would have happened one way or the other, but these people do get blamed for it. And the corporate Democrats, you know, as long as they could win the big cities, uh, they kind of didn't care that they lost the rest of the country. So it's not like the Democratic Party hasn't had a hand in helping at least till the soil for this development. I certainly can't just disagree with that. Um, you know, I completely understand why people in the you know, deindustrialized uh, Middle West or, you know, impoverished parts of the South, uh, you know, people who have seen their communities just sort of bled dry and depopulated and uh, and and effectively ignored uh, for decades now. Why they're angry? That doesn't surprise me, uh, you know, one little bit. And I don't think there's any doubt, but uh, that the Democrats were complicit in a lot of this. Uh, you know, NAFTA, uh, after all, uh, was uh, began under began under under Bill Clinton. Um, that said, I think, um, you know, in terms of which party might actually be willing to do something serious to, to help these folks, I, I don't think that's the Republican Party. I think that's the Democratic Party, uh, at least if by something you mean, uh, you know, other than, you know, further loosening gun gun laws and, uh, and uh, further lowering taxes, which I don't think at this point is really going to be a much material benefit to these folks. Now, there, up until the invasion of Ukraine, uh, there seemed to be a certain sympathy amongst some of these forces for Putin. I know Tucker Carlson, who I think is one of the voices of this crowd, uh, always was a, had a bit of admiration for uh, Putin. So did Trump. 
the invasion made it a little difficult uh, to, to keep that up. But they saw Putin as a defender of white Christian faith, his uh, revival of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. Um, but they seem to have a, a great hatred for China. And, and, and in terms of foreign policy, that's the thing that concerns me the most. Uh, Bannon has talked about uh, a bloody struggle uh, with Islam and with China. And I think they're, they're now more concerned about China than Islam. And I, I think Bannon seems to represent the more politicized sections of this movement pretty well. It seems that is what they believe. Um, how concerned would we be w with, with this type, with a, with a Trumpist presidency and what that might mean with the possibility of war with China? So why do they, why do they love Russia so much? Um, you know, partly they just, because of the, the things that white Christian nationalists like Stephen Bannon value most are order and hierarchy. And um, by order, they mean above all kind of racial and religious uniformity and purity. And they, they see in Russia uh, a sort of a idealized picture of a society that's religiously unified, that's racially pure, and of course, just also strong and masculine um, and willing to stand up to and, and, and take on its enemies. I would hasten to add that this is a kind of complete Disneyland version. This is like an Epcot version of Russia, which is not at all religiously observant, is not in fact particularly uh, racially or ethnically homogeneous, but that's sort of what they project onto it. Of course, what do they see in China? They see a racial other, they see a religious other, uh, they see um, you know, a threat to, uh, to American power and dominance in the world. And I really do think that for many, it, it's, it's, it's that simple. Um, you know, I'm sure there are more complicated kind of economic and geopolitical considerations um, playing some role there as well. But I think it really at, at the root of this anti-China animus is just the, the religious racial otherness of it. And, and again, it, it serves economic interests of certainly sections of the elite, particularly the military industrial complex. And I'm not so sure big tech likes it because they want to get at the Chinese market and sort of sections of finance. But almost war with China is pretty good for the arms industry. How does how do they relate? Is it like is it sort of deliberate and conscious? Uh, is it spontaneous or kind of both? It's probably is a, is a little bit of both. I mean, you know, Steve Bannon, with all due respect, is not a stupid person, um, you know, and I think he is able to think in these sort of large geostrategic terms. Um, but I think your sort of average, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson listener, uh, you know, for them, it's it's just really more this kind of visceral animus that they feel about, um, you know, China showing up to eat my lunch, you know, to take my job, uh, to change my country. Uh, Bannon started the Stop the Steal campaign in September, a month before there was an election. He went on a national Stop the Steal tour before there was an election. Uh, this indictment. On September 17th, six weeks before the elections, Steve Bannon appears on the Tucker Carlson show and calls for a war starting on November 4th after the Democrats, quote, steal the elections from Trump. 
Carlson is, of course, nodding his head in agreement. There should have been no surprise with what happened after November 3rd. It was all planned in the open. The Democratic Party has traumatized their base. They're not going to come out to vote. And so somehow they have to concoct a, some effort to steal this election because they're not going to get people to come out and vote on game day, the 3rd of November of this year. And that's what I've been I, working I, on for the last couple of months. I was never going back. I was never going back to the campaign. And that's where these guys messed up. My platform's bigger now. My voice is bigger. I've got more resources. And all we're focused on is to make sure that so, the progressive so I, left and the corporatists cannot steal, cannot steal the election from Donald Trump. I'm more focused than ever. We're kicking off a national tour on Monday called The Plot to Steal 2020. They're not going to stop my voice in assisting President Trump and making sure that this election that he's going to win on the third is not stolen from him. Huh. And then maybe the real contest begins. Steve Bannon, I'm glad that you came on. Thank you that's very when, much. That's when the war starts. I, I, Thanks, I'm beginning, to th I'm beginning to think that's true. Uh, their plan was, and I guess could still be, essentially a real coup that overthrows the way at least votes are counted, if not voting itself. Uh, when, when you say what they want is an Orban-style, Hungary, uh, even Putin-style America, so you're saying what they want is a religious autocracy. Or they want a kind of a kleptocratic authoritarian regime that is kind of dressed up in in religious garb is maybe the way way that i would put it you know they want a kind of a you know religious fig leaf to hide their business behind is what they want and when you've taught when you've talked i assume you have as part of your work if not otherwise when you talk to ordinary people who are believers um do you have any success if you if you've tried to kind of get through to them i mean there's the there's the there's the christianity of love your neighbor treat others as you want to be treated turn the other cheek and then there's the christianity of the crusades and this white christian nationalism seems to have more to do with the crusades than it has to do with any message of jesus i ever heard. Yeah, that 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 that's absolutely right and you know maybe there's a i think there is a bit of hope in that that uh there are many younger Christians who are troubled by what's going on in their own church or troubled by what's going on in, in, in the country, you know, troubled enough that it might eventually change their politics and, and, and even their votes. Uh, you know, they, some of them um, are, uh, you know, not uh, homophobic or anti-LGBTQ, um, you know, they believe that global warming is a thing and they're actually worried about it. And I think it can matter to speak out to folks like them. And certainly, um, you know, even if you disagree, if you disagree with them on certain kinds of issues, you know, we, we need all the allies that we can get right now in order to defend American democracy. And that is going to mean, I think, uh, if there's going to be any hope of uh, rescuing democracy, it's going to mean allying with people who we might have some pretty serious disagreements about policy issues about, but um, about with whom we fundamentally agree about the value of democracy is, uh, you know, is, is crucial to the American project. I was just reading reports on this meeting of this, the Southern Baptist Convention that's going on now. And in several of the reports, and I've seen this previously, it says that 70% 
voted of the people of the who are I think the 14, 15 million people of their congregation voted for Trump, but that means 30 percent didn't, and that's that's a significant number. 30 percent didn't vote for Trump, and I, I knew that was at the time of the, of Obama, amongst a lot of the evangelical congregations, um, at least 20 to 30 percent voted for Obama. Uh, there is a, uh, it's not monolithic by any means, uh, but I don't know if there's much deliberate organizing going on amongst that 30%, because I would seem to me the best people to talk to the 70% are the 30%. I think, I think that's, I think that's right. And there definitely are active efforts along these lines. Um, you know, so I, you know, one, um, one organization that I've had some uh, involvement with and done a few interviews with is the Baptist Joint Commission on Religious Liberty, which is very strongly for separation of church and state. And, uh, you know, for that reason is, is very worried about the theocratic tendencies that have emerged so sharply uh, on the religious right, and especially among Christian nationalists in, in recent years. So I, I do think that there are, there are allies out there, you know, of course, are they as well funded as some of these Christian right organizations know, but they're, you know, they are very motivated and they are working very hard. And I think it, it, it is important, as you say, for secular progressives to, to just be aware that there is a religious left. It's smaller than the religious left, right, but it, it exists uh, with whom you may agree. There are also uh, principled conservatives, people like David French or Peter Wenner or Russell Moore, again, with whom I would disagree on a lot of policy issues, but who are also terrified by, by what's going on um, and have been never Trumpers pretty much uh, from the get go and continue to be really strongly opposed to the rise of this populist and authoritarian right um, amongst many uh, of their of their fellow Christians. So I, I think we do really need to be, you know, just as the left isn't a monolith, you know, I think a lot of it's probably bridal when uh, people on the right talk about the left as if we all agreed about everything because, you know, we very obviously don't. Um, you know, a party that, you know, runs from AOC and Bernie Sanders to, uh, you know, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin on the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of disagreement. Um, and so we just need to be aware that this is also true amongst conservatives and that there are still some principal conservatives, principled conservatives, if not necessarily uh, in the congressional delegation, once you get beyond Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, you know, with whom one could potentially ally, who do share our concerns and fears right now. Uh, just finally, why do you think the June 6th committee and certainly the preponderance of mainstream media are, are more or less ignoring the whole issue of white Christian nationalism when they talk about the 6th? It is, it is interesting that it hasn't come up because, um, you know, Sam and I and a bunch of other people um, who studied white Christian nationalism actually did uh, submit written testimony to the January 6th committee. A number of people, including Sam, actually also gave, um, uh, you know, oral testimony before uh, members of before members of the uh, of the committee. And so you know, they, they certainly have plenty of materials to work with. And I, I don't know why it is that, uh, that they haven't put this front and center, because uh, I certainly agree with you that if you are trying to figure out what was the real animating force 
behind January 6th. Uh, it was not quote-unquote conservatism, it was not populism, um, it was white Christian nationalism. And all you need to do to confirm this for yourself is just use your own eyes. Uh, you know, look again at some of those pictures uh, that we have of, of, of the insurrection, in particular at, at the different symbols that were there. You had the wooden gallows and the wooden cross, you had Trump flags, and you had Christian flags, you had uh, MAGA banners, and you had Jesus Saves banners. And that mix of things might have looked to you um, like it was a sort of a jumble, but uh, it's very clear to me, and I, I hope clear to uh, folks who are listening in, that, that that was all of a piece. That was white Christian nationalism that we saw in its most violent and virulent form on January 6th. Well, I think the media and these politicians are I afraid. I think that is part of what's going on, too. Why else? There isn't they, don't want to, they don't want to say it out loud. I think they're afraid of them, and some of them are part yeah. of them. It's not only Republicans that are involved in this. There's certainly sections of the Democratic uh, House and, and Senate either involved directly in white Christian nationalism or the Catholic variation of Opus Dei or... Uh, and they just don't want to get into a fight with the religious right. Uh, people, uh, I think the secular left in the country is highly underestimating how strong these forces are. Anyway, thanks very much for joining me, Philip. It was my pleasure, Paul. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the, the donate button, subscribe, uh, or the ring button on YouTube, come over from the podcast, sign up on the email list. And thanks for joining me. <laughs>